This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Dave Leary Show. Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexual content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. Okay, well, Jim, um, thank you for coming in tonight, man. Uh, I think that you have a great story, and I, obviously I can't talk about it. That's for you to do. So, right on, um, David. I appreciate you coming in, man. Well, Take thank you for thank you for having me, David. This is a this is going to be an experience for sure. Um, my name is Jim Portman, and I am an alcoholic. Um, I'm 32 years old, and I've been born and raised in Calgary, one of the few, from what I understand. Um, Ooh, you were like born and raised here, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, so was my mom, so was my grandpa, and so was his mom. Really? So four on my side, which makes my daughter fifth generation Calgarian, which is wow. kind of crazy. Um, side note, if you go on the Glenbow Archive and start searching the photos of my family last mm-hmm. name, there's there's quite dated photos of uh, yeah. Yeah, of us, so it's kind of interesting to see that. That's but, far um, out. Yeah, it is, man. It is. I'm, I, I feel very connected to where I live, and um, I don't know. I, I appreciate the country and the mountains and all that stuff, but I appreciate mm. the city that I live in. I really yeah. do. Um, but yeah, I mean, my story of recovery, it... it uh, I don't want to say it's uneventful, but I've never spent any time in a prison. I've never mm-hmm. had terrible troubles with the law, um, and drugs weren't even a big part of my story, quite honestly. I am a, I am a very true alcoholic, um, you know, a very, very true alcoholic. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to my childhood, you know, fa- fairly normal. No, uh, no trauma, no abuse, no sexual abuse, any of that kind of stuff um, that I know is so common mm-hmm. in, in our stories, so common. Um, so I feel very lucky to have had the childhood that I, uh, that I, that I did have. And it, it's funny, the more uh, sobriety that I get under my belt, the better my childhood mm-hmm. actually seems. Yeah. It's kind of crazy yeah. how that works. Um, but you know, the the only real event in my childhood that I think may have been a catalyst, um, you know, just to feel different, to feel outside, you know, uh, was when my parents divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bit of violence in the home prior to that, none towards me, never towards me, but between my mom and my dad, there was a little bit of drinking and there was um, physical violence between the two of them. I don't have a lot of memories of that. Mm-hmm. I have a couple memories, police showing up a couple times. I remember my dad was asked to stay elsewhere, find a hotel for the night, maybe two, three times that I can remember, but there was never, you know, never any hospital visits or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, obviously I do remember and, and perhaps I'm not 
you know, I, I, maybe I don't appreciate the effect that that maybe had on me mm-hmm. as a child because, you know, I look at my daughter and I can see what stress affects her and the mm-hmm. anxieties that affect her and the way it sort of dictates her behavior. I mean, as, as we know, um, How old is she is two and a half, yeah. um, specifically she's 31 months, two or three days ago. Oh, cool. Man. Yeah, no, it, it is. It is. It is really interesting. Um, if nothing else, I identify as a father, you know, yeah. really. I mean, that means a lot to me. But, um, you know, I, I, when my parents divorced, it, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I mean, yeah, they had some uh, some arguments over the phone. I remember my dad lost it once because he had some child support papers served to him. And I remember that. I remember him. You know, calling my mom, phone ringing off the hook, threats and stuff like that. And I think we went to my grandparents' house or something to hide out for a few hours while he calmed down because he he definitely did for a number of years struggle with anger. And he he went through a number of anger um, management programs. And, you know, he's really experienced benefit from that. And I'm talking this has got to be 25 years ago now. And he's 25 years older and he's matured quite a bit in that regard. And I haven't seen that kind of behavior out of him in probably 20 years which is kind of cool um it is absolutely and you know he's not he's not a program guy he's not an alcoholic he's not a drug addict he's just a you know he's just an older man who's got some problems with his emotions and processing and handling and relationships and all that so i mean when i see that sort of stuff from him i i realize that what i deal with isn't unique to you know my alcoholism my addiction it it is it is um you know it's part of me beyond that, I suppose. Um, and it makes me feel connected to him in, in a certain way because, you know, I always held him in such high regard, but we're, we're very much the same, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. That's another thing that happens as you get older. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You start to identify with our parents as, you know, the, the human beings that they actually are yeah. rather than that whole dynamic of, you know, hierarchy almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I went through elementary school. I, I wasn't, I didn't excel by any means at school. I was always, always told about my potential. And, you know, um, if, if only I applied myself, if only I cared about my studies and, you know, the homework and all that kind of stuff, I, I would be, you know, better than a 65, 70, 75% student, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I know I could have been, but it just... It just never did it for me. It was just, you know, school was just not that interesting. No matter the topic, I could always get by by doing just enough, but it just just was never my cup of tea. Um, and sometimes I think, could have I could have, could have, could have, could have I done it differently? So no, I just I, I wasn't that that kind of person to do it differently. Then you know, and uh, and that's okay. Um, as a kid, I was into sports, hockey and baseball from a pretty young age. My dad was a pretty athletic guy, um, and I was pretty good at those things. I was pretty good at uh, hockey more specifically than baseball. Um, I think my dad would have rather it been the other way. He's a big-time baseball guy. He spent a lot of time with uh, minor softball and baseball in Calgary um, with their umpires association and stuff, donates a lot of his time to kids nowadays, which is really, really cool. cool. Yeah, absolutely it is, man. Um, it's inspiring, really. I mean, it's all volunteer-based stuff, and I think that's really neat for him to do in his retirement and all that. Um, I've had asthma all my life. 
And it's kind of interesting. And I look back and how that relates to the alcoholism and to how I felt about myself and all that kind of stuff. Um, it always sort of affected me when I played sports. Mm-hmm. And I was always the kid with the inhaler, you oh, know? And, and it's yeah. like, and I almost wore it like, you know, a badge. It was like I was a little different. I had a little bit of an illness, you know? You know, I could get out of certain things because of it. Um, whether it be whatever sort of situations, because I mean, even as a young kid, I felt sort of outside and uncomfortable mm-hmm. and awkward and the typical stuff that we, we, we hear about, um, you know, before the booze and the drugs really kicked in. Um, and I remember I must've been 12 or 13 years old and I had a pretty bad asthma attack and I ended up in the hospital. I remember about halfway through, I was starting to recover and I was starting to get better. And I've not really talked much about this, but I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to have to go home soon. And I remember forcing, like, coughing and stuff to, like, keep myself in there longer. Because I think I think I like the attention. Mm. You know, th- that little thing. I mean, for me to be, who have felt outside and different and all that for so long, that this sort of sickness, you know, gave me a bit of attention that was different. Than what other kids got you know i mean there, there were kids on the the team that were better you know kids that were smarter but th- this was this made me a little more unique and a little different so i remember being in the hospital and like forcing it and it kept me in there three or four days longer and i even remember and i remember now what it would have meant when the nurse asked me is there anything going on at home like is there something wrong mm-hmm. like, no no not at all everything's fine and i realize now as an adult because she she must have known there was a bit of faking, a bit of, you know, fabrication there because they don't usually ask those type of questions unless they suspect there's a reason that the kid doesn't want to go home. Yeah. And it was just me trying to get attention, I think. But I mentioned that because through that, that that bout with asthma, they put me on a new medication. It's a steroid. Um, it was relatively new to the market at the time and brand new to me and all that. And I was just at that cusp of puberty. And I started taking this medication, and like I say, it's a steroid, and I gained so much weight Mm. just due to physical changes, medication, and all that sort of stuff. And that's what really propelled that feeling of feeling different because I used to be, you know, the the year before that I had made the top team for a 12-year-old in the area that I had lived in um, for hockey. Mm. You know, a couple years more of that, I would have been, you know, AAA type stuff and, you know... But then I got heavy and then I went from the first team to the third team and the third team to a lower one the year after that. And I just lost all interest in sports because I was no longer as good as I was. And kids are kids and the fat kid is an easy kid to poke fun at. And, um, you know, that looking back really, really shaped my, you know, my esteem, my confidence, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's still hard for me to go to the pool without a shirt on, you know? Really? And it, yeah, I mean, and it, it's so silly because, I mean, I mean, the facts of my life, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong. But I mean, I still at times struggle to look at myself in a positive light. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that that I think is always going to be a bit of my my um, my challenge, my battle, you know, um, in, in recovery and sobriety is that whole... Um, emotional side of you know how I think and feel about myself which is kind of interesting when you trace it back further and further and further and further maybe I did have um, you know 
that tendency early on to feel that way, but I do believe that certain things shaped me to at least think and feel the way I think and feel about myself. Um, not, not to say that, that that creates alcoholism or addiction or anything like that, but I mean, it's definitely been a portion of just, just how I am. Um, so I ended up quitting sports because, you know, locker room got made fun of lots, you know, just slowed down altogether, running, skating, all those things. And I just didn't really fit in. And I remember the year after I um, quit playing hockey, my dad suggested curling. And I got into curling for a year and I was terrible at it. I was terrible at it. And me being like this. It hard. It, it is. It is harder than you'd think it is, man. And... Um, you know, so maybe in the 14, 15 year old I am at the time, it's like, I can't even curl, you know, at this point. And it just like, it, it really, really knocked me down a lot. And, um, you know, I can't remember. I think that I may have tried alcohol once or twice, you know, prior to this. Um, but I remember it was after school one day, sometime around the time I had quit sports. And maybe I was a little younger. Maybe I was 13, 14, not 15. Um, just went over to my buddy's house after after school and we got into his parents' liquor cabinet. Mm-hmm. Wasn't anything, you know, wasn't a special occasion. You know, his parents were going to be out until like 7 o'clock. We had got off at, you know, got off school at 3, 30, 4 o'clock, whatever it was. And we just got into the liquor. And I remember getting so, so hammered, blacking out. I remember stumbling home and my mom didn't think much of it because I was as young as I was. And she's like, what's the matter with you? I'm like, oh, you know, it was, it was, I think it was late in the school year, so it was a hotter day. And I spun this hammered story about being on the merry-go-round in the sun. And I threw up all over my bed, but I did it quietly and she didn't know. And nothing really came of that. But I look back and I remember now, ever since that first drunk, which wasn't special, it was fairly unpleasant, um... I was looking for the next and initially by no means was it every day or every week or probably not even every month off off the bat there but um there was always something about booze something about partying you know like I said my parents they drank but my dad you know he he drank beers with his buddies you know around fire pits and you know, out at his cab or out at his brother's cabin and stuff like that. It was, you know, it was good fun. It looked like good fun at least. And it was something that I think from a very young age, I sort of, I don't know, I held in high regard. Like it was some rite of passage. It was, it was something like, you know, my dad and his brothers did, Mm -hmm. you know, my grandpa liked his rum, you know, my mom would have her beers, you know, it just seemed like the fun, cool thing to do. So even before I drank, I thought it was there was some appeal to it for me, um, and then you know I started to get into in, into more music and art and stuff like that, and I romanticized the idea of like the drug addicts, the drunks, the the musicians and the artists who died young and all that kind of stuff, and I, I don't know why, because even still. I look at that stuff and there's something something special about it to me and I don't know what it is that that really does it for me when it comes to that sort of like 
deep, dark, brooding kind of artistic, whatever it happens to be. And I, I still can't quite explain why there's an appeal to that to me. Um, it's romantic. And I don't know why. I know. I know. Me either. Me it's either. crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. But um, it was through that process that I really started to embrace the idea of, you know, partying and, and all that kind of stuff. And even being an inexperienced drinker, something about me physically, aside from the physical manifestations of alcoholism, mm -hmm. I could always drink a lot and I could always drink very, very quickly. Um, you know, whether it was beer or hard liquor or a mixture of the two. Um, so I was one of those kids that was drinking and smoking weed and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff towards the end of junior high. You know, I didn't get in a lot of trouble. You know, I, I maybe hung out with the kind of bad kids, but not the really bad kids. You know, we were sort of the middle of the pack kids, but I was probably the most excessive user of booze and stuff of that group that I spent time with. So, I mean, I never had a, and I'm lucky that I never had really negative influences in my social circle, because if I had, I probably would have went that way, ran with it and been in a lot worse shape than I was. Um, but when I got to high school, that was sort of the time that uh, Jackass and um, what was it? Uh, the other one that Bam Margera was in, um, just doing that dumb, dumb shit yeah. for the sake of doing dumb shit, right? Um, and people loved it. And then I sort of realized that I could also do dumb shit. <laughs> and people would give me attention mm -hmm. and I sort of realized that okay we're young and I'm, this is me sort of looking back at this mm -hmm. and why it sort of it came to be what it was that I knew I could drink I could drink more I could drink quicker and, you know I'd go to parties I was a sort of the shy kid and like this is such a typical alcoholic <laughs> story and you get a few <laughs> drinks in me and I can talk to girls I can you know I can be fun I can just be social I can be a goofball but then it's like you start doing the drinking games and stuff and I just blow everybody out of the water mm -hmm. and people are just egging me on to just drink, 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 drink. And it's the best attention I have ever received in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, never popular with girls and believe me, this didn't get me more popular with girls <laughs> by any means, yeah. by any means. But that was okay because the guys, man, they just thought I was like the champ of drinking and like I had this little crew of buddies and we just, we just tore it up. We were known for that. And this is in high school, man. And I remember, uh, I think it was the first time I ever experienced a little bit of heartbreak, you know, um, in high school. And that was the first time I can remember medicating with booze. Mm. I remember being like, I don't want to feel this way. What can I do to change it? Like booze has always been the party thing, but you know what? Let's see what it does when I'm alone, when I'm not feeling good, when I'm feeling, you know, down, sad, broken, rejected, abandoned, all those things that alcoholics can't handle. Um, I can handle it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and even still was not daily drinking at that point in time, maybe smoking weed every day, but 
that that never compared to what booze did to me physically mentally emotionally and then you know down the road figured out what it did to me spiritually which is just bankrupted me um but that like i say that was the first time i used it to to medicate a negative feeling i'd always used it to um amplify the positives to you know be a better party or to be more exciting all these things but i had never never used it on the other side of the coin to medicate Mm -hmm. medicate my unwellness you know in my head and in my heart and and whatever it was and um and like i say it was high school whatever i got over that pretty quick but one thing that i've always put way too much stock in um, and I'm realizing it's it's codependency, you know, the longer I, I, I stay sober and work on the, the emotional side of this, is that I've always held romantic relationships in way too high of a regard. I have put way too much importance um, in finding, like, a romantic partner. Um, I've always had these extremely lofty expectations of what a relationship or a romantic partnership or whatever that is supposed to look like. Um, I mean, I have no, no real basis of what that's supposed to look like because my parents divorced when I was very young due to violence and stuff in the home. Mm -hmm. So it's strange that I have these extreme expectations of what a relationship is supposed to look like yet I've never actually seen one that looks like my expectations, which is kind of crazy. Now that I say that out loud. But I bet your expectations are all about safety. More or less. Right. I would have to say so. Yeah. Because that's one thing that I'm definitely uncovering in my um, recent, you know, few months of uh, life. That I, I do suffer from a lot of insecurity, you know, um, in that regard. And it, and it comes back to the rejection, the abandonment, the alone feelings, and just an inability to, to face those you know, in, in, a, in a healthy way. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I made it through high school. Once again, um, teachers, parents, everybody telling me, you could be doing a lot better. Yeah. You're just not trying. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to. You know, I mean, I could... Up until a point, I could probably choose the grade I wanted to get, mm-hmm. you know, based on the level of work. I mean, and I was able to coast by through grade 12 by just um showing up and doing tests i didn't do any homework i didn't bring any of my books home i didn't and my dad was like how are you not failing you never do homework you never bring your books home and i seem to get a lot of phone calls for you not being in school Mm. well i mean i i'm not gonna not get my diploma so i mean let's not have a fight about this Mm. type of thing and i think he was getting to the point with me that he didn't want the same thing to happen between him and i that it happened between my mom and i Mm which is got leading me to have to backtrack just a little. Um, right around that time, just after my first drunk, um, my mom and I, we were arguing like like you wouldn't believe. I mean, there wasn't any physical violence. I got smacked a few times just for being a disrespectful little shit. Mm-hmm. But um, she was drinking a fair bit at the time. Um, you know, whether or not she was ever alcoholic, I don't know. That's not for me to diagnose because she hasn't had a drink in a number of years. Yeah. You know, um, she dabbled in AA probably around that time, maybe just after, but um, her her health, her mental health, all that kind of stuff just doesn't allow her to drink anymore. And I think that's great for her. And I'm not, 
I like to share principles with her, but I don't push her into meetings or any mm-hmm. stuff like that because whatever whatever works for her works for her. Um, but at that time, I remember she was drinking, and I was I was staying at my dad's on weekends, and uh, I can't remember the exact events, but she had told me in one of her drunks, "Why don't you go fucking live with your dad? See how the fuck you like it there." And I remember it was a Sunday night, and I was at my dad's, and. Um, He's like, you going back to mom's? I'm like, no, not happening. And he's like, okay, all right. We'll uh, figure out what to do for lunch for you to school tomorrow and we'll go from there. And I think that was him realizing that things were tense with my mom mm-hmm. and that I was finally at a point because, you know, he couldn't miss work for me to, to get me to daycare and, or anything like that. And I was at a point where I was more self-sufficient and he could finally house me permanently. And that is where I stayed until I moved out on my own, which was, it was like, a, it was tumultuous. It was up and down. It had a lot of different things, but um, I guess that leads me back to where uh, he, he picked his battles with me. He absolutely did. I mean, I wasn't flunking out. So I think he just sort of left it alone because I think he was tired of saying you could do better if you tried. Like, of course I could, but look at me do averagely without trying. There's some, I was proud so of that. why would I do better? Yeah. yeah, I was proud of that. It's like, I can get by without trying. Like some people can't even do that. Like, yeah. you know, that, that grandiosity of averageness is just kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of interesting. It's like, ah. Uh, you know, the great, most grandiose average man you'll ever meet. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> I am great at the middle of the road for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, things definitely were becoming tense between him and I. But I think he just, like I say, he picked his battles with me, and I really do appreciate the relationship that I ended up having with my dad out of that, um, and still do. I mean, part of my story nowadays is working on that relationship because. It's tough. It's tough to carry on relationships for me in sobriety, which is kind of interesting. That is becoming my like number one thing to work on these days is my ability to maintain um, principled relationships because it's tough for me um, at times for sure it is. Um, But uh, yeah, like I say, I graduated high school, um, not with honors, but I graduated high school and I was half-assing things out of high school. I was working at a gas station near my house, really close to a pub near my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing some dishonest things at this particular gas station, which always ended up having a pocket of cash at the end of the night to take to that particular bar that I was going into just before I turned 18. And then when I turned 18, and I think I counted something like I spent like 315 days in a row in that bar and wore that like a badge of honor, you know, because I would work five days a week. Every night I'd go into that bar and I would drink and they had $9 pitchers. And it was like I was in my heyday as an 18 year old, like Mm -hmm. me and my buddies, we'd run the pool tables. You know, it was just, you know, we'd, we'd drink after hours with the staff and it was just the coolest fucking thing, you know. But that was about the time that I had gotten into another relationship, put all of my emotional stock into that Mm. with someone who was younger than me, who was not well. You know, they were still in high school. I was working at a gas station, drinking all the time. And I ended up spending a good, almost three years with this person. Um, But this is really when, like, the alcoholic depression started to um, really rear its head. 
and whether or not it was alcoholic depression or just depression you know i had one doctor tell me early on which i think is i think depression and alcoholism i don't know that they're actually related they might sort of uh, cross paths from time to time but i don't necessarily know that they're related to one another no there might be correlation but not necessarily causation yeah absolutely because um one doctor told this to me they're like well, I'm not sure if you have depression caused by alcoholism or alcoholism caused by depression. And I and I thought I was just, okay, well, I'm just in this hopeless, never-ending cycle that could <laughs> yeah. just, there is no solution to this, Sounds right? devastating. Absolutely. And I remember just, you know, back and forth that this woman at the time, you know, causing myself, causing her, causing my family, all sorts of this emotional turmoil and just the depression that I was experiencing and anxiety, I think those things are very much related. Um, I was just getting to the point that I was going nuts, going absolutely nuts. And I remember I had my mom drive me down to the uh, South Calgary Health Campus down in Sundance and uh, talk to a doctor about my depression and the insanity. And I remember sitting there and the doctor said something I didn't like and I was just like, fuck this, I'm out of here. And I'm like jogging across the parking lot. I hadn't been admitted to the hospital yet, so they couldn't hold me. But security was like behind me trying to convince me to come back. And I just ended up hopping a fence and they couldn't pursue me any further. And I think I was white knuckle sobriety, white knuckle, white knuckling sobriety at the time. Maybe had, you know, a few days, few weeks, whatever it was. And I remember I wasn't driving at the time. I was young to get or late to get my license. And, um, I remember walking to a liquor store, buying a 40 or something, a gin, and just sitting over by Shaughnessy train station and just drinking it, texting with my mom and my girlfriend at the time, all these just really uh, worrisome and concerning texts about what I was going to do to myself and so on and so forth. And they're like, can we come get you? Can we?" Go? And I just wouldn't tell them where I was. Yeah. And I finally let the girlfriend at the time know where I was and she came and found me. She told my mom. My mom came and picked me up. And I was just so drunk and out of it. And this was probably one of those first displays of self-harm. I remember sitting in the front seat of my mom's car, just smashing my head against the window, trying to break it. And she's screaming at me to stop. And the girlfriend's sitting in the back seat screaming at me to stop. And neither of them had seen that I'd pushed the uh, cigarette lighter in. And I, these are, you know, I remember bits and pieces of these things. And my mom has told me about it. And apparently I took that lighter to the back of my hand and just held it there. And she said she saw the smoke. She smelled the smoke. And all I did was laugh. Just laughed about it. And I don't remember what else had happened that night. I'm sure I said some more things about hurting myself, you know, probably other sort of violent behavior. And uh, I, I, I ended up back at my dad's and I remember I uh, passed out for the night and woke up very early in the morning and I, I went out and I drove around and I might have drank some more booze and there was some altercation between my dad and, and myself and I, I still, I, a very, very hazy memory. And I passed out again at home after that and I woke up to three or four police officers in my room. My parents had called the police um, because they were concerned about my emotional and mental well-being mm-hmm. with very good reason. 
Um, so they put me into protective custody. They brought me to the Rocky View where they held me in a cell for a while. I talked to some, I'm sure, head doctors and I just told them, you know, I don't want your help. I don't need your help. You can try whatever you want, but I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to fight you every step of the way, basically. And um, it, it's surprising I didn't get an assault charge or something because I spat on one of the cops' shoe intentionally and basically, you know, said, I hope you're proud of the bullshit job that you do. And it's like, I wish I could find that guy. And <laughs> And tell him that, you know, he'd do a good job. But um, they brought me from there to the Lougheed, to the psych ward or whatever, the mental health. Um, and I remember just talking to the doctors and the nurses. And um, one of the doctors is like, you know, you can leave anytime you want. Fairy one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But I'm like, really? And they started looking through my file. He's like, oh, wait, no, you can't. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> But that was like one of the coolest things because it, it really fed into my ego that it's like, I bullshitted you. You thought I was well enough that I was just here of my own free will. And they let me out after about four days. They put me on some sort of medication that just made me, you know, it probably, it, it, it might have worked had I not drank every day on it. Um, it's more likely to work. More likely. Abs yes, 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 absolutely it is. <laughs> I know that now. Um, so, like I said, I, I convinced these doctors and nurses that I was well enough to be discharged. Mm -hmm. I knew it was bullshit. I took the pills. I drank. I did all that stuff. And I still continued seeing this, this person that I, I was dating at the time. And no fault of hers. I mean, she was where she was at, and she was who she was, and mm -hmm. I was... A, alcoholic who was really starting to spiral out of control yeah. um and i just allowed that situation to continue to, to to affect me in a negative way and bring me down and you know drinking on those pills and all that sort of stuff the insanity just continued to spiral downward and become out of control and my mental health and my emotional well-being was just in the toilet and i remember having some sort of and it's like the details don't even they're, they're they don't even matter anymore because they were so insignificant and so petty but that was the story of my drinking yeah. i mean i will drink at anything and everything anyone for doing anything mm -hmm. you know like, it's just it's it's funny to me now to think about that yeah. type of behavior because it's just not me anymore um anyways we had some sort of fight i went out drinking and driving that was one of my worst habits was to drink while driving. Um, I black out. Three days later, I'm in the hospital. I have no idea what had happened. It honestly felt like the blackout had, had lasted a moment. Yeah. And it was three days later. And I guess what had happened was um, I was in the Southwest uh, and the witness said that it looked like I was trying to time the light to go green while I sped through it. Um, the light did not turn green, so apparently I tried to make a hard right-hand turn onto the road that uh, was intersecting, and my tires just didn't bite the road, and I just sailed into the actual light pole. Um, police said I was going about 90 without a seatbelt on. Uh, I broke 13 ribs, collapsed both my lungs, uh, fractured my hip, and screwed up my knee, which I still deal with. Yeah. Um, Wear seatbelts, kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but once again, 
you know, I ended up in the hospital for a couple weeks out of that one. You know, doctors are, they're putting me on Ativan. It's like, why are you putting me on Ativan in, in addition to the painkillers? And it was because my parents had told them how much I'd been drinking. They just didn't want me experiencing heavy withdrawals while I was trying to heal from all that stuff. Didn't understand that. Didn't put that together one bit. And I was 19 or 20 at the time. It was 2007. In 2007, I also got the job that I still have today. And um, I am so grateful for my employment. Um, I mean, it kept me off the streets because I work in a bit of a boys club, very, very large corporation. Um, we're at the ground level with the labor work. Uh, it's sort of an don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. It's like, yes, it, people were very aware of my problems, but um, you know, if, if I wasn't breaking things or stealing or hurting myself or others, then it was all right. Well, I mean, if he shows up on time and manages to make it through the day, then so be it. Um, yeah. So 2007, I had this car accident, but I also started this new job. Um, two weeks in the hospital, lots of doctors mentioned in the drinking and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I drove a car into a pole drunk. Of course, I have a drinking problem. But at that point in time, just not willing to see it. Just not willing to see it. Um, and you know, in the next few years, nothing terrible happened. Nothing eventful, just a lot of drinking. A lot of drinking and feeling depressed and feeling sad and feeling useless and discontent. Um, that girl that I had dated for a few years was the last long-term relationship that I actually had between the time I was 21 and the time I was 26. Uh, everything in between was just drunk, drugged up, um, debauchery for the most part. And not, not, not like in a sexualized way. It was just that I was a messy, messy drunk for a lot of years. Um, I don't believe I had any like suicide attempts or anything in, in, in those times. And it seems kind of funny that they're actually sort of insignificant when I think of them now. It's like I don't even remember if, it, if there was any. Um, drugs weren't a huge part of, of those years. I mean, if it was around, I'd do it. Um, if it wasn't, whatever. You know, I, I would do drugs like, a, like an alcoholic. You know, the drug people would tell me to slow down. You know, you can overdose on that shit. Mm -hmm. So be it was often <laughs> my uh, my response to that. You know, so maybe I wasn't overly suicidal through those years, but um, fairly indifferent to my own life, mm -hmm. fairly indifferent to my own life. And, you know, even as a father and a sober person, I battle that still. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think um, I think it's good to know that. I think it's really good to know that for me. Um, but yeah, through those years, you know, and, and like, and the reason I mentioned my job is because once again, I was in a position where drinking and partying and showing up uh, hungover and a bag of shit was almost a badge of honor because, you know, like I say, these ground level labor workers, man. I mean, where I work, 
we are 30 years in the past. Like it's, it's been two years of them coming and being like, Hey, uh, fellas, you know, racism, sexism. Nah, we, we don't, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like that's a big deal. Right. Yeah. And it's only been talked about in the last couple of years. Yeah. Huge corporation. Kind of interesting, but, um, we're slow on, slow on the go. We are, yeah. we are, but we're trying, we're trying. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that is what's important for mm-hmm. sure. And I appreciate that. Um, but the reason I mentioned that is because once again, back to high school, the drinking made me fit in. It gave me a bit of attention. Um, it made me feel a little bit special that these old, you know, crusty guys were like, you know, thumbs up, you know, you little drunk, you know, and you know, it's kind of funny actually. Uh, people would refer to their nights that they had prior to coming to work. They would say that they got Jimmy drunk. Mm -hmm. My last name is Portman. Um, they would say they got Portman the night before. <laughs> and I just loved it, right? Yeah. And people still mm-hmm. bug me about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one guy would always say, you know, I like, the, I like my drinks as much as the next guy. Unless the next guy's Jimmy Portman. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, you know, and I just loved it. And I can mm-hmm. still laugh at that because it's, you know, that's part of my past. And that's what I was. And that's how I behaved. And so, you know, the work environment really provided me a safe place to be a bag of shit Mm. honestly i mean i was not a model employee i mean i was hung over every day and that was fine for a while that was fine for me for a while you know i lived with roommates who knew i had a problem they knew when i got paid rent bills like the day of i never got behind in that regard because i have always been lucky enough to be surrounded by people who have my back Mm. you know i've never spent a night on the streets you know i've never spent more than a night um in custody Mm. and and i am just so blessed to not have gone down those roads and i realized that oh man like i don't want to compare my stories by any means but some other people have really gone through some shit to get to the same sort of place that that I am at. So, I mean, I am so grateful that that God or the universe or whatever, you know, allowed me at least some grace through, through that bullshit. Because, I mean, there was a lot of things that I almost, you know, wanted, you know, that I wanted to die over. And those things weren't that bad, you know, especially in comparison to some things that I, I know other people mm-hmm. have gone through. And, um, you know, so I can really appreciate that. I think the but the thing about the story is being different. Like mm-hmm. that, the reality is is that um, it, it's not so much the details of the external, but the details of the internal that are consistent. Right? Like, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And even a few years into recovery and being told m- many times to to not really compare yourself mm-hmm. to the outside, I still have that tendency yeah. to do so. But that comes from the the ego mm-hmm. that I that I experience of never being never never right sizing myself i'm always less than more than it's it's always it's always a less than or more than story with me and i i I occasionally struggle to just be to just be just to be in what is you know um so like i say it, it was tolerable for a while but then those feelings of you know and the book talks about it thick book talks about it of not being able to imagine my life with or without booze you know, and I mentioned earlier that my mom had dabbled in AA just mm-hmm. a little bit. She'd gone to a few meetings at Haddon Road, and I had no idea. It's a good place. 
It is. Yeah. You know. Sorry, man. No, hey, no, that's okay. That's okay. And um, so I knew nothing, nothing of AA, nothing whatsoever. And um, I remember they're sitting there with the guys at the end of the day, and I was shaking like a leaf and just feeling just terrible. And I hadn't, I, I, I don't think I'd talked to my mom in a little while because we had some sort of fight when I was drunk and I just ignore it. And then a few months would pass and then I'd call her and pretend like it didn't happen and she'd sort of do the same. And I remember texting her and I just said, like, what do you know about AA? Where can I go to a meeting? And she didn't really know much. She could tell me there was a nooner at Haddon Road on Fridays or something like that. Um, and I ended up just going on the AA website and I can't remember if it's the word-for-word -word preamble that we read in the meetings, but where it talks about, you know, we, we are recovering from a hopeless state of body and mind, um, whatever it, it said. It just hit me like, shit, like that's me. Mm -hmm. That is 100% me. And um, that was the first day I went to a meeting. I worked very far down in the south part of the city, just off 194th Avenue. And I, uh, I went on the website and I found something in the southwest. I grew up in the southwest. I always felt more comfortable in the southwest. And I don't, this is what was driving my, my thinking at the time, right? And I, I went to a meeting called New Beginnings because it was a daily meeting. They had a meeting I could make at about, I think it was 5.15 that they have their, their evening meetings. And that was 15 minutes later and closer so I could get there. And it was the only one that um, seemed easy enough to get to that wasn't in a church. Mm -hmm. Because for me, the whole God, religion, you know, obviously I understand they're very much separate now. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just all the same thing. And I just couldn't couldn't wrap my head around it and so on and so forth. And I, en I ended up going to a tradition meeting. My very first AA meeting was a tradition meeting. And I remember wow. the chairperson apologizing to me after the fact for that. Mm -hmm. Because he, I think he understood that, you know, maybe I didn't get much out of it, but I did. Yeah. I did, and I can't remember what tradition it was. I, I don't even think it was, you know, one of the more relevant ones, like one, three, or five, you know, for a newcomer at least. Mm -hmm. I, I don't yeah. think it, it was. But either way, I went back the next morning, went to their morning meeting, I went to their noon meeting, and something just clicked. I felt like we all say from time to time, something felt like home to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I ran into somebody from high school, my very first meeting. He's not not in the program anymore, but that served a huge purpose for me. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of my second or third meetings, I met somebody that I'm close with now. You know, he was one of the first persons to say, I hope you hear something that keeps you coming back. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even that to me was was something else like I always romanticize like this this idea of depth and you know uh, I I don't know but there was something really intellectual about AA that I that I really grabbed onto mm -hmm. the way people spoke the ideas that they that they brought forward and the fact that they talked about how they felt mm -hmm. you know you know a room full of people and you can talk about suicide openly and nobody's gonna nobody's going to judge you and I, I realize like a is not not about that they're not group therapy sessions by any means but when when a group of people can talk about the discomfort in their own lives um you know with and without a drink and, and how they were able to move through those those sort of uncomfortable moments those uncomfortable feelings 
and do it without a drink, you know, it, it really, it really did something for me. And um, all the little acronyms and the sayings and the one-liners, uh, they helped me. And they still do from time to time because I'm simple. And I like the simple, the simplicity of it. I'm not as deep and complex as I, as I seem to have thought I was or still <laughs> seem to think that I am at times. But uh, spirituality, the idea always was cool to me. Um, my mom always, you never prayed to God or even talked about God. But she always told me never to use his name in vain which I thought was kind of strange, but it's very strange. It is, it is, yeah. it yeah, is, it is. Right. Um, but she always talked about, you know, the universe and that kind of stuff and, you know, ideas like karma and, and things like that. So when I could kind of move past the religious idea of God, which honestly didn't take very long. It really didn't. That's good. I'm, 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 I'm thinking back and it's like, you know, I hear a lot of stories in meetings about, you know, people's experience with religion prior to drinking and through drinking. And I think, holy shit, I am glad that I didn't have any of that because it, it seems like such a block for some people, their preconceived notions of what, what spirituality is. And I didn't have a lot of that other than this idea of the universe, karma and whatever else. Right. So it's kind of a good starting point. It, it wasn't bad. Yeah. It wasn't bad. Yeah. It was a pretty loose basis that there is something. Yeah. But we're not going to define it at our, at our home. You know, we never went to church. You know, like my grandpa even, you know, he's 83, 84. Never, never a church going person, you know. Um, and I'm not sure that his mom was either. Like no, nothing religious in our family whatsoever. But never anything agnostic or atheist. Yeah. You know, n no real talk of spirituality. Um my grandma was a pretty interesting person. She always liked the idea of the afterlife and mythology and things like that. So, I mean, we, we, we often talked about things of that nature. So, I had sort of a limited but also fairly broad idea of, you know, the greater and, and whatever that could be. Um, so, when I got into the steps, the first step, yeah, powerless, 100%, unmanageable. That was tough for me, but we already talked briefly about it has nothing to do with the externals not mm -hmm. one darn thing it has to do with how i feel and my ability to cope you know on a day-to-day -day basis without pouring liquor down my throat you know um and like i said my roommates yeah they they supported me so i didn't end up on the street you know my parents they supported me so i didn't end up on the street my job supported me in its nature that i never got in trouble for being hung over a lot of things supported what appeared to be manageability in the outside. Yeah. You know, I, I never lost my job, never ended up on the streets, never went completely broke. But you know what? I, I had a horrible reputation. Yeah. You know, I, I lied to my parents all the time for money. I could can't even imagine how much money I owe them. You know, when I made my amends to my mom, she said, you know what? Call it even. Mm -hmm. Which I was just like, you know, it's still taken back by that a little bit. Um, but life to me seemed manageable. But then when I finally understood that, no, this has nothing to do with the things I have, the money in the bank and all those sort of things, nothing to do with that whatsoever. It, it's the fact that I just don't, I just don't feel normal on a day-to-day -day basis. And I drink to feel normal. I drink to find ease and comfort to quiet my mind, you know, to quiet the anxiety, whether it be social, financial, whatever it is, it is just to get right. 
And getting right usually ended up in a blackout for me. Yeah. You know, um, that, that's the type of drinker I was. I was a daily blackout drinker. Mm-hmm. If I couldn't drink that much, I would not drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I eventually understood the unmanageability of, of my unwellness. Um, and I was able to move on to, to the second step, which for me wasn't uh, that hard to, un- to, to believe that, okay, there's something else here. Yeah. There's something else going on because I remember walking into another meeting for the first time, a bigger meeting, and it was full and everybody, I don't know, maybe it was a God shot or maybe I was only noticing just the happy people and the laughter and the, the brightness and it was just like, okay, this is, this is beyond me how there are this many people who claim to be as alcoholic as I am and they are all tickled pink right now. <laughs> they are all having a great fucking time here, 11.30 on a Sunday morning. It's like, like you all realize where you are, right? But, and that's the thing about it, man. It's like that transition of what the fuck am I doing here in these rooms with these fucking people? You know, and then eventually it goes to, yep, these are my people. Can't wait to get here. You know, like, you know, I'm going to put on my, my nicest plaid shirt to come to a meeting. And, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a good example and, you know, all those sort of things. And, it just becomes super enjoyable and soup. I don't know, man. Like it's, it's my favorite thing aside from my daughter and my family. It's just like, I love getting to meetings. I love talking sobriety. I love talking recovery. I love talking about the big book. You know, I love hearing other people's stories. Um, you know, I love hearing when people are going through things, you know, when they don't quite know what they're going to do, but they know that they just got to keep moving forward. And, you know, and you see it with newer people in the program. It's like, you see them progress through the things that they're progressing through and you just see them open up and the things become more clear to them. Like the blinders are coming off them and like, you know, everything just seems so bright and wonderful to them. And it's just the neatest thing to watch. Cause I, 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 I struggle to see that in myself, mm-hmm. you know, especially a few years into it because, you know, for the longest time, I didn't have a lot to get through or get over. I've had a really, really consistently good sobriety that things have gone my way. It's been a very gradual but consistent upswing in my sobriety, which is not true for everybody. Um, so th- that's, been, that's been really neat for me. Um, you know, when somebody described the second step as, you know, repeating the same thing over and over again, insanity, expecting different results, that clicked for me. There, there is so much more to it for me now of what insanity means to me. You know, I don't consider myself insane, but often with my brain, I live in a world of make-believe, man. Mm. You know, I make things up and I believe them. And then I have emotional reactions. And when I have emotional reactions, it changes my behavior. And I treat people differently. I treat myself differently. And that's the type of stuff that I deal with nowadays. You know, um, back when I took the, my third step for the first time, you know, I didn't really know what that meant. You know, I got down on my knees with my sponsor and, and, and I read the prayer. I, I didn't move on to my four step for months. And it took a relapse actually before I, before I um, really took the thing, thing seriously. Yeah. Because um, in my first little bit of sobriety, I did the one, two, three. I don't need to do a four, five, six, seven or any of the other steps. And I had a relapse. Mm-hmm. 
I made a relationship a higher power, like I always did. Stopped going to meetings, had a relapse. Um, but within my first 12 months after my first meeting, I had seven months sobriety, followed by three months of drinking, and then two months back in the program. And it was kind of an interesting little um, you know, example of when you're working the program, things are real good. Mm-hmm. When you're in the program and not working the program, it gets miserable in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And you would like to leave the program because for me, all I wanted to do was blame the program that wasn't working. Even though it was me who wasn't working the program, right? And then I experienced a few months or a few weeks, I should I suppose, of um, dry drunkness, of not going to meetings, going insane in my own head. And I started hurting myself again without drinking. And I finally drank again. Mm-hmm. And it was about 100 days in a row of drinking, which at about 60, 70 days, uh, I ended up in the hospital with a pretty significant self-inflicted wound in one of my wrists. Um yeah, I don't know why I forgot about this whole part. That's a very important part of my story. Um, hey, you're forget. You're just waiting. Just waiting. Just waiting. I kind of have to backtrack <laughs> yeah. because that was my first one, two, three. I could get it. I could understand the unmanageability. I could mm-hmm. understand the in- insanity. And I could understand that I needed to do things different. I just chose not to do things different mm-hmm. and do things my way. And that got me drunk. That got me really sad. That got me really suicidal because, you know, that classic phrase, nothing worse than a head full of AA and a belly full of boots. Because when I relapsed, every day that I drank, and it was every day, I'd get to that sense of ease and comfort. And then I would have another drink. And that would leave me. And that would turn into, what the fuck are you doing drinking? Two, three weeks ago, you were going to AA meetings. You should not be drinking. Which would lead me to drink those feelings away, which would just exacerbate. And it would get worse and worse and worse and worse and pet perpetuate. And I would be wasted and crying. And Fuck, that negotiation is awful, isn't it? it is, isn't it? It, yeah. it is. And, but I never had that negotiation prior to A. You know, I, I, it was, yeah, I, I shouldn't drink for mm-hmm. sure. Whatever. But I mean, I'm a, I'm a drinker. You know, that, that was always what it was. I'm a drinker. This is me. Yeah, I shouldn't do it, but I'm gonna because that's me, right? So when I went back to, when I relapsed, it was, I'm an alcoholic and I know it because I've been to meetings. What am I doing drinking? This is literally me choosing to die, you know? I mean, so those feelings just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I remember just being a crying mess and my girlfriend was at work and she's trying to help me and I'm just threatening, you know, to hurt myself and so on and so forth. And I, you know, I took a knife to my wrist and I like walked out of my bedroom to my roommate at the time, I'm like, hey man, like, uh, can you run me to the hospital? And he's like, what? what? Like, why? And I'm like, can you look at this? And he's, and you know, and he's just such a calm guy, and I still feel bad for putting him through that because he drove me to the law, he dropped me off, he went home, and my dad showed up, and um, you know, again, another thing just to put my, my my poor father through because I mean, I think about my kid, and it's like, oh man, she has a cold, and I feel bad. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. I got this wound on my wrist, and he's sitting there with me in the waiting room, like trying not to cry his eyes out, and it's yeah. just. You know, the things we put other people through, and it's just the hindsight, though. I mean, I'm so glad to have it because I've been able to mend that. Mm-hmm. You know, mend that behavior as best I can because I know that still hurts. I know it does, but that's part of, the, part of this that I need to accept. That I can't, I cannot fix every bit of damage that I may have created for the people that love me. But I can do my best on a daily basis now 
to at least reassure them that they're not going to see that from me again, you know, and um, I can always be better than I was yesterday, which is really neat. Um, but once again, God, you know, shows himself in interesting ways. Um, I kind of think that I did what I did that night to get back into that psych ward because that worked so wonderfully the first time. Um, and it's a memorable the, place. It is. It is. I <laughs> never rode an exercise bike so much. No go. Looking out that window <laughs> over into Whitehorn. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, At least you had a good view. Yeah, no, absolutely. They, they planned that well. <laughs> they planned that well. Um, but so I, I, I need stitches for this wound. And uh, I end up, this, this ER doctor, he couldn't have been more than 35. Maybe he was young. And I was kind of surprised to see that. And you could tell he was sort of not really interested in dealing with a little, you know, drunk guy. But um, I, I shouldn't say that he wasn't interested, but he had an attitude that I wasn't sure how to read. Like he seemed a little frustrated mm-hmm. that he was dealing with something like this. And I said something about the psych ward, and he's like, you know, doing his casual stitching. He's not looking up at me. And he said something, no, I'm not going to do that. He's like, I'm not here to comment on your spiritual condition. But from where I'm sitting, you can't drink. You can't drink today. You can't drink tomorrow. You can't drink 10 years from now. You can't drink. He's like, I'm going to give you a pamphlet for some counseling that I think you might benefit from. But I think we both know what works for you. And I think you need to go back to AA as soon as you can. I've just, I've never really heard that out of a medical professional's mouth because they're often a little hesitant to suggest it because I sometimes think they don't want to be liable for um, the blame of it not working at times. Um, I didn't quit drinking after that. I probably drank for another two or three weeks. Um, by that point, uh, my girlfriend had left. Um, and just to clarify that that woman is in fact the woman I am with now. She is the mother of my child. So she just got sick and tired of my daily drinking, my abusiveness, um, not physical, but emotional, mental, verbal, all that kind of stuff, because I am not nice when I drink. I am not nice, especially the people I care about. Um, it's like, you want to love me? I'll show you why not mm-hmm. type of thing. I swear it's the most like, you know, it's like I need this acceptance, but f- this acceptance and love, but fuck you for trying. You know, it's, it's interesting how that the, the dichotomy of that, I suppose. Um, but yeah, she uh, she fucked off for a couple of weeks. And I remember we sort of had a talk. And then she showed up. It was early on a Saturday morning. And I was still drinking, and I don't know what transpired in our conversation, but that was the last drink that I had. And that was May 7th of 2015. And it wasn't anything remarkable. It wasn't, you know, these, you know, barn-burning spiritual moment where, you know, I've heard so many people say that God spoke to me and said, go back to AA. No, did not fucking happen. tell that story. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, eh? No doubt. Um, it was just like, you know what? 
I am sick, I am tired. Mm. And she was on her way to work and she said something about me. You know, like, you know, you, you got to do something about this. And if you do so, I mean, we, we have a chance. And I don't know if that motivated me then, you know, if I did it for the wrong reason at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But either way, I got back to the rooms. You know, I told my first sponsor that I was coming back and he made a few phone calls and like eight people, you know, showed up just for me. You know, some were hugs and tears. And I remember this one fellow said, I'm going to beat you to death with the big book. Mm-hmm. I'm going to beat you with this fucking thing. You know, and um, I don't know what really brought me back. But, I mean, I got to work pretty, pretty soon on, on the things that I needed to do. Um, yeah, clearly unmanageable. Clearly my thinking was unmanageable and not just my behavior in the outside world. Uh, yeah, I was insane. No fucking doubt about it. Um, and yeah, I needed something bigger than me and it was good that I already had an idea of what that might be and and how that might look. And I relied on the group for a little while. The acronyms absolutely helped the, uh, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the group of drunks, the good orderly direction. Um, but the one that really works for me nowadays is the gift of desperation because man, when I am desperate, I work my ass off. You know, I am more connected when I am desperate and it is the craziest thing. You know, it's, it is easy, easy to forget when things are good. What got me to where I'm at? Yep. So easy. And where I'm at now requires more of what got me here. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really does to maintain the, the, the quality of life that I have nowadays, man. It requires more God. It requires more spirituality. It requires more fellowship. It requires more of the things that have always proven themselves to work. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it's so cool. And once again, back on my knees with my sponsor, you know, third step prayer. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, some people say they have these crazy experiences when they read that prayer out loud with somebody else. And I never did. I never did. But I, but I took it seriously that the work needed to start, mm-hmm. that I needed to get into the, 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 the meat and potatoes of the program. You know, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thir- thoroughly followed our path. And rarely have we seen a person fail who has completed four through nine. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I believe that. I mean, because when I got into that, things started changing you know i stopped blaming people so much a lot of times that is my first reaction especially when things are not going my way who can i blame how can i take the heat off me but at least now i realize that that's my tendency that gets me in trouble that hurts me and that hurts others you know that whole i am the victim people did this to me so on and so forth just to throw that out the window Mm -hmm. you know immediately Whenever those things pop into my mind, I am not the victim. Yeah. I am never that. And and that was easy. Or it became easier to see that going through that work. And um, my sponsor said to me something about... Uh, just let me know the time. Yeah, no worries. No mm-hmm. worries. Cool. And my sponsor had said to me, um, you know, if you want to do your fifth step with me, that's cool. But if not, um, you know, I can refer you to the mount. And I ended up calling them and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't figure out a time for me with my work schedule and another little God shot. They said, well, how about this, uh, this retired priest who works out of, uh, St. Mary's Cathedral on 18th Avenue downtown? He can do a Saturday afternoon. 
that sounds great. Turns out he's retired from the church, but he still works with them doing step fives. You know, been 30 years sober or whatever. And we sat down for a couple hours and we just talked. And then by the end of it, he's like, you know what? I've heard worse and you ain't that bad. Um, he's like, I'm going to tell you one thing. Forgive yourself. God forgives you. I forgive you. What makes you unforgivable to yourself? And, you know, and then I moved through that. I moved through the six and seven. You know, I've made most of my amends um, with the help of a sponsor at the time who I do not work with anymore because, I mean, people outgrow people. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think that the, the steps are this transformational thing that sort of change as you progress. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing another set of steps now with a 30 or 25 year guy and, and it's different now because life has changed so much for me in the last few years you know I, I got a two and a half year old daughter who has taught me so much about love about you know patience and tolerance and unconditional love like mm -hmm. I never knew what that meant and and, it, and it's so crazy I didn't even know it was a thing no I didn't <laughs> either I didn't either and it's like I still can't believe that there are people in this world who love me unconditionally. Mm -hmm. I struggle with that, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting that I can see that in others, but can't accept it for myself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I guess that leads me because I, I, I really do appreciate the format when they talk in the big book of what it was like, what happened and what it's like mm -hmm. now. I mean, the four through nine, it showed me how to clean things up you know, from what I had done, from what I'm doing now and what I can do in the future. And the fact that I can go through my days now practicing those, uh, those principles from those middle steps, I can at the very least go to bed every night and with some dignity, you know, with some integrity, which is not something I could do before. Mm -hmm. And if I can pull myself out of myself and look at that, I have a lot to be proud of, mm -hmm. which is, which is again, tough for me to accept. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard for me to be proud of myself in, in, in the right sort of level because I still experience grandiosity, you know, with mm -hmm. insecurity. And, and it's just... Oh, what it, a trip that is. Eh? It is, absolutely. Yeah. Feeling like larger than life, but also insecure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it, 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 it's such an interesting... Uh, balance that I that I need to uh, constantly be aware of you know and I, I mentioned earlier that my, my sobriety has been on a pretty consistent upswing for most of it mm -hmm. um, you know with my daughter and with my career like you know yeah yeah for a number of years I was not a model employee but it's, it's, it's amazing that you know when I change my thinking and my life follows that thinking then the other aspects of my life also follow that. So my career in the last year and a bit has really, really um, taken some positive changes. I, I've been afforded some really good opportunities to, you know, um, improve myself, uh, to work on my skill set, to add new tools to uh, to my toolbox at work, and. Um, you know, they compensate me accordingly for that. So, I mean, I'm able to provide for my family in a little bit of a better way. Um, I'm more proud of the work that I do. And the only reason that any of this is happening is, you know, I want to say maybe it's because I got sober or because I worked the program, but it's because of God. Mm 
at the end of the day, that that is really what has done it for me. The steps got me closer to God. Mm-hmm. Sobriety got me into the steps, but you know, I'm not a I'm not an everyday meeting guy. I'm not a you know, I'm not one to harp on the 90 and 90. I'm not. I am pretty serious about getting connected with God because mm-hmm. that for me has afforded me all the opportunity, all the blessing mm-hmm. and the ability to move through things, you know, with, with some grace, with some humility, you know, with some integrity and some character, man. And the fact that I can do that is not because of me. It is because of God. And I, I, I firmly believe that. And, you know, the person I was six years ago would be shaking his head. The fact I'm saying that now, um, the last year, like I say, has been really good with work, but it's also put me in a position to mm, think and feel more about myself and my abilities and, and whether or not I'm actually um, successful at work. And it's kind of been interesting because it's really contributed to a lot of uh, anxiety. You know, am I good enough? You know, am I accomplishing things the way I should be and so on and so forth. So it's really, really um, played into, once again, how I think and feel about myself. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting because I've actually had to seek some uh, outside help through counseling and psychiatry and stuff like that over the last year for those things. Because I really do struggle with the way I think and feel about myself. I mean, there are times you can present all these facts to me that I know to be true, positive things about who I am and the things I've accomplished and all of that. And there are times that I just cannot see eye to eye with that. The way I think and feel does not line up with the facts I know to be true about myself. And that's something that I've really embarked on, um, you know, looking into and working on the last little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few months ago, life, did what life does and uh it surprised me with a situation that sort of rocked my world it sort of turned everything that i knew to be true about myself um sort of upside down and i've sort of had to um really dig deep into where i'm at because i don't think i've been able to appreciate the level of anxiety and maybe depression and, you know, perhaps even some dry drunkenness over the last year up until life had to smack me in the face a little bit to say, hey, you need to work on some things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's some hurt that has happened in your life as of late. But once again, quit playing the victim. Even if you are a little bit the victim of a situation, quit playing that role and look at what you can become from this you know find your part in that resentment not in the situation not in in the actual act of what had happened but find your part in the feelings the situations the behaviors everything that may have led up to that where were you involved were you selfish were you self-centered were you dishonest did you act out of fear you know, if, if I can be honest and look at those things in situations where I may have been slighted, where I may have been victimized, mm-hmm. it, it certainly allows the uh, forgiveness piece 
to flow a little more easy. It, it really does. I mean, you know, and it's kind of crazy that when something this unideal happens to me, at least, um, it forces me back to God in a way that only end stage alcoholism had done. I was presented with a situation that pushed the gift of desperation once again. It forced me to look at my spirituality and my mental health more seriously than I have since I first came into the program. You know, I think that um, I was a lot more okay with progress than ever trying for perfection. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I know it is progress, not perfection, but there's a, there's a line in the, the 12 by 12 or something. We set our eyes towards perfection, mm-hmm. that we try, we try, we try, we try to get there, never expecting that we will. But I really do believe in the last little while between, you know, a comfortable family, better job and all that, I really did kind of let the program take a back seat and and um, life happened in a way that life so often does. I didn't drink, I didn't use, I didn't even pick up cigarettes again over this situation. And I think that's pretty beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it hurts. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, it has brought me closer to God. Which, you know, if I take my feelings, my thoughts and feelings out of it, how can I say it's a bad thing? Mm -hmm. Just like having a sober up. It seemed like the end of the world. It seemed like it would be, you know, just not possible. What an order. I can't go through Mm -hmm. with it. And it's turned out to be, well, that was the first best ever thing that I did. You know, then I had a kid. Never thought that would happen and wouldn't have happened, at least not not in a whole home. Not on purpose. <laughs> ah, yeah. This, my daughter was not on purpose. <laughs> but once again, God shots, man. Like, yeah. These things come out of nowhere. You know, I was listening to a speaker that t- told me that, um, you know, I can pray for all the things that I want and I might get them. But that is going to fall so short of had I prayed for God's will for me. Because I can't imagine what God has planned for me. You know, and I have been so forceful through my will and stuff the last few years in relationships with my parents, with my wife, girlfriend, partner, whatever, not three different people. <laughs> it's they're just, all the same person. They're all the same person. It's just hard to call her my girlfriend because we have built such a life together and we have a child um i guess she's my partner and i want to call her my wife but we're not actually married so when i call her my wife people are like oh you guys are married and then i have to explain no she's not actually my wife but she may as well be but uh yeah i don't know it, it, it's just such an interesting place to be you know, a number of years down the road in sobriety and I get smacked in the face with this life situation that forces me to dive deeper. And I think that's so cool. And the more I spend time with other people in recovery, um, new and old, it, it, it just makes that to 
more and more true to me, man. Mm-hmm. You know, sobriety is the best thing I've ever done and is the best thing that I continue to do. And, you know, my entire life depends on that. And I don't deny that for one second. You know, one thing that I kind of touch on occasionally is the idea of uh, recovered. I know we are always working. We are always working on ourselves. We are always trying to sort of level up and, you know, continue the process that is recovery. But when it comes to drugs and alcohol, I don't obsess. You know, this situation happened. And years ago, I probably, you know, there probably would have been a suicide attempt over something like this, quite honestly. There wasn't any of that. There was not any of that. I didn't get thirsty. I didn't want a cigarette. I didn't want to do anything to get fucked up and i believe you know for that obsession to be gone i am as recovered as i am going to get when it comes to drugs and alcohol absolutely you know man i i yeah i can get sick in a hurry if i'm not doing the work but mm, that whole idea of always always being in recovery from the hopeless state of body and mind not once did i feel hopeless exactly not once did i feel hopeless because that's what they referred to yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, just I don't like the whole idea that we're always going to be just sick. It's like, well, we have tendencies, but as long as we're not indulging that excessive use of drugs and alcohol to the point that we're jeopardizing our lives, we are as normal as the normalest person out there. I mean, because mm-hmm. we all have problems, we all struggle with coping. And I, I don't know, I guess. I don't like to I don't like to use the program or any of that stuff to make myself feel different or special. I don't like normies. I don't like that mm-hmm. that idea because I have met plenty of people more fucked up than I am yeah. that have never never dealt with their problems with drugs and booze like I do. And maybe they never had a problem, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And they, I mean, they're annoying shits, but still. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, I mean, life is really good. And if I can stay out of the way of it, you know, I've realized in the last little while this 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 sobriety thing for me, you know, it, it's not about the drugs and the booze anymore. It's about feeling okay about who I am, you know, and how do we get there? How do we get to feeling all right? You know, and um, by doing what you're doing, by doing what I'm doing, man. And one thing that I learned or have really adopted lately is that this sobriety thing is not a process of addition. It is not being more of anything. It is not being more loving, more compassionate, more of any of that shit. Because my daughter, who is two and a half, is all of that and she didn't learn it. She loves our animals. She loves me. She loves her mom. You know, she gets a little reactionary because she's a toddler, but man, she is innocent. She is pure. She is wonderful. You can see the things, life experiences, building up anxieties around her, you know, fear, how to stay safe in certain situations. And yeah, those are, there are natural things that we use to protect ourselves. But man, I come back to that make-believe stuff. It's like, I can tell myself stories based on the future, based on the past, and I will have emotional reactions to these things. And it's because I've built up these walls. Mm-hmm. I've built up these ideas, these patterns about who I think I am, who I think people should be, expectations of myself, relationships, just everything. 
And I hinge my emotional well-being on those things. One of the coolest phrases or sayings that I've come across lately is that it is my relationship with the situation which determines my well-being. It is never the situation itself. And I realize that my relationship with situations is often determined by what I tell myself about that situation. And what I tell myself about that situation is generally based in some sort of futuristic idea or some sort of idea that comes from a past experience. And that brings me to something that I keep trying to do. I try to just be in what is. I don't try to tell myself anything about how I feel. I'm not really mad. I'm not really happy. I'm just, I just am. And when I get rid of those ideas around what I should be or what I think that I am, I can often just be. And when I can just be, I'm authentic. And when I'm authentic, I believe that God has a better chance of working through me, I guess. But uh, Well, yeah, well, when you're authentic, you're, you're living out what you were created to be, right? Like right. That's, the, that's the, the beauty of authenticity is that Whatever a person's authentic self is, when they get in touch with that, miracles happen. Absolutely. Absolute miracles. Absolutely. And the last year of my life has been a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 it is showing me who it is that I can be yeah. and, and, and who God wants me to be. Because I don't believe that this, this situation has happened to me. Mm -hmm. It has happened for me. You know, I am happening with it. You know, God is here with me through all of this, mm -hmm. and I don't believe any bit of it is an accident. And I, in, in this situation, the last year is not just about me. It is about my family. It is about my daughter. It is about my partner. It is about my parents. It is about her parents. It is about, you know, the, the broadness of our families mm -hmm. and um, the growth that we can we can share and appreciate together. And... Um, I realize that I often like to make the way I think and feel everybody's priority. Mm. And it's just been the most humbling thing to just just be there for other people. Mm. And just be like, you know what, I feel uncomfortable, but you know what, I'm going to do my best to, to not act in that because mm. I don't need to act the way I feel sometimes. Yeah. My pride and ego don't like that. But I do not need to act the way and I feel sometimes. And the fact that I'm able to begin to do that with the help of others, the help of God, with a partner who has been so supportive, um, you know, through my mental health and my addiction and stuff like that, and a family that has been so supportive. You know, I never, black sheep I may be, but they never, never ostracized me by any means, you know, so... I think I'm kind of rambling here at, the, at this point, but uh, sobriety is really cool. Mm -hmm. And it is only because of sobriety that I'm able to look at myself on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. and be okay with it, despite the fact that it's occasionally overwhelming. Yeah, for sure. It really is. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way, man. Awesome, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Will that do? Dude, it's perfect. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And, and thank you. Thank you, David. Yeah, and it's and thank it's you too, Darcy. What's interesting is that um, so I, I appreciate how how you've spoken about your difficulties. Right? Yeah, because yeah. That's um, you no, know, in a general way. I'm I'm appreciative of that because it's the the idea is in when we're recovering, 
And by recovering, I mean we've recovered from that hopeless state, right? So, but as we're recovering now to the lifestyle, yeah. Um, the fact that of how you're going through this difficult time, in my mind, that is the key. That is what it's all about. Because, like you said, life happens. Life, dude, we're all going to get kicked. At least once or twice, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. Some people way more than that, as you mentioned. Um, but also, lots of times, people who go through a lot of stuff end up doing a lot of kicking too, right? Because yeah. we, we get into involved in that back and forth. But you're not there. And that's no. to me, that, that is like a, one of the biggest gifts of, of recovery of anybody out there and wondering, like, even if you're not an alcoholic, first of all, I've never met a norm. So... Yeah. I've, I've met lots of people who don't drink and have never used drugs and all that. Yep. But they're all weird as fuck. Yep. So there's absolutely no norm. <laughs> right? Like, fuck no. Yeah, I know you're in the room. That's why I'm saying it. <laughs> <laughs> but I like, I like weird because yeah. the reality is that most of the people that I know are weird. Yeah. When I get to know them. Yes. Right? They're just as complicated as I am. They're just as diverse. They have, there's all this stuff going on. Um, and I, I was like, in the beginning of sobriety, it, there's a tendency to, to be like, and you can still hear it with lots of new people and some old people. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency to think that we're special. Yeah. Right? And the reality is, is that, you know what? We're special because we're alive still. Mm-hmm. There's no question that that is not a guarantee. Yep. Right? But in terms of like actual interaction with the world, yes, there are some normies who have shit together. Mm-hmm. They, they do. They seem to be able to interact with problems in a very healthy adult way. I am not but one of them. Yeah, neither is Darcy. Uh, as time goes on, mm-hmm. you get better at it. But I think the, the coolest thing about it all, man, is that uh, I don't sense like any bitterness. There's like none of that shit, right? And that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, 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 I'm... I'm not suggesting you never feel it. I'm oh, just, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just saying that like through this conversation, I haven't sensed Anyway, right? Well, and, and I, I suppose that's one thing that I, I take very seriously about the step four stuff is that it is fact finding and it, it is not about reliving, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I, I mean, of course, I mean, I can relive the things that have hurt me, mm-hmm. but that is, that is my ego. That is all that, that insecurity, all that inferiority, just trying to bubble up and make me feel worse about things that I don't need to feel worse about. You know, and, and I, I identify that with my alcoholism or whatever you want to call it inside me that drives that type of thinking. If I'm feeling bad, if I'm feeling resentful, if I'm feeling bitter, it's a fucking choice. Yeah. You know, it is. Yeah. It absolutely is, man. Because we get to choose what we grab onto in our head, right? Mm-hmm. We choose which thoughts mm-hmm. we follow down, which rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't necessarily choose the first thought, but we definitely choose what to do with the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of my favorite... Uh, sayings man mm-hmm. i'm not responsible for the first but i am responsible for the second what i do after that and definitely for the actions that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely right on so i'm about to start rambling so we might as well all right so, yeah thank you jim very I, much um, very much appreciate it yeah appreciate glad you. to be here glad to be here man thank you for tuning in this week to the voices in recovery podcast please stay tuned every wednesday as we air another episode thank you for your time And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook 
under Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.